Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper, and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that, though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Tapper, back with the Invisible Truths podcast, and this week I'm excited to have the incomparable Isaac Villegas as my guest. Isaac is a pastor within Mennonite Church USA, which is the denomination that I'm affiliated with. Um, He lives out in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and he pastors the Chapel Hill Mennonite Fellowship. Isaac is also the co-author of the book Presence, Giving and Receiving God. And he has a Master of Divinity from Duke Divinity School. So he is kind of a big deal, y'all. And informally, Isaac has the dopest beard with (laughs) (laughs) USA. Informally. (laughs) So thanks for being here, Isaac. Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is I'm excited. I'm excited. And also a little nervous because I saw those questions ahead of time and you know. I mean, you ask you ask the deep questions. Yeah, I'm I'm known for tough questions. Uh, so so we'll jump in. So um, uh, for my audience, one of the reasons that I'm excited to have you on is because of your heart and the work that you're doing in your community. Um, you seem to have found a way to um, you found a way to walk within your faith context in a way that is authentic to who you are and also impactful for the marginalized members of your community. And you're, you're leading a charge, especially around prison reform and immigration initiatives. And so I'm really excited just to hear how you came to that place in your spiritual journey and your personal journey and what that experience has been like for you. Can you think about a time when you had to embrace and face something that was uncomfortable and how that led to your own personal, emotional, or spiritual growth? The thing that came immediately to mind, and I'm not sure if this is exactly, you can tell me if this is not where you're, where you're asking for, but it, it's just what came to my mind, is uh, I remember when I was in college, I was the one who was like the designated driver. I went to a college that was, it was a Christian college, um, you know, that doesn't mean anything. Um, right. But it was, it means, basically means that most people there were wealthy. <laughs> uh, but uh I went there and, oh yeah, so I was with my friends cultivating these relationships that became significant to me. And I remember one, one night, late Saturday night there in DP, I uh, was with my friends and noticed that like at this party we were at, there was just like beer cans everywhere, like thrown on the ground. And you know, that's just, I mean, basically Sunday morning, Del Playa, the streets were just littered with, you know, everything that you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was late on night Saturday and I was there uh, with my friends and I saw, you know, I know basically I saw a bunch of like, I saw a Latinx family um, mm-hmm. picking up beer cans and um, in the midst of like everything else, young people, all of us, you know, having a good time. Um, and they were there trying to make some money, trying to like, you know, make, make ends meet. Mm. And it was this moment of recognition for me, like this mutual recognition of uh, this recognizing myself, like 
you know, an acknowledgement of them. I, you know, said hello in Spanish, spoken Spanish. And it felt like a kind of like a racial awareness mm. for myself and about the kind of community I wanted to be a part of and wondering why it was the case that I, yeah, that like what, what was motivating me in life and like who should I fit in with and what, what should be important going forward. Um, so yeah, that is one of these memories, you know, I was like, I don't know how old I was, 19 years old, 20 years wow. old. Yeah. Um, and it's just always stuck out on me as this like, as a kind of interrogation a little bit of, mm of who I want to be and, and who do I want to be, who, like, who are my people basically. Um, yeah. And that being, uh, being kin is like, it's a calling. Um, there's a line, I can't, this is a line that we use in a uh, song, Southerners on Newground, which I'm a part of. And I think, I can't remember who it goes back to. It might go back to, um, I think it goes back to Alice Walker. I don't even know. People say that, I, yeah, anyhow. But it's a line we use all the time where um, not all skin folk are kin folk. Yeah, um, yeah. And this, so this sense of like kin, making kin is something you got to commit to um, mm -hmm. as part of a world we want to make together. So yeah, so that's, that's a memory deeply mm. instilled in my life about like what does it mean to be a part of a people and which people you want to be in, uh, in community with. Yeah, that's uh, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, before we move on, you used the term uh, Latinx. Some of my audience may not be familiar with that. So can you talk about what that means and why you use that as opposed to other more popular terms? Yeah, so uh, Latinx has emerged as a as a word to describe people of uh, Latin American descent or in the United States. Um, or who are Latin American living in the United States. Um, it, it's so in Spanish, it's hard because all, uh, it, well, in traditional Spanish, it's complicated because all nouns are gendered. So you'd either say Latino or Latina. Um, Latinx is a way of, of being non-binary and describing uh, a Latino or Latina identity. Some mm -hmm. people say Latino, Latina, Latinx, like all three, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's cool too, but yeah, Latinx is kind of shorthand for all of that. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, as you think about the intersection of your cultural identity and what it means to also be a part of a predominantly, at times almost exclusively white denomination in a country in which racism seems to be rampant, can you talk about the pivot point for you? When did you begin to shift your focus into what it meant to be true kinfolk and to be working for and alongside those that are marginalized. Mm. What happened? When did you shift? And what has that journey been like? Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, that's good. That's good. Part of it is that, I mean, growing up with like my, like my family and kind of the experiences being racialized uh, as a family growing up in Southern California and, uh, Arizona, southern part of Arizona, next to the border, borderlands area, was was always on, has always been part of my life. Like that, like it's just very clear that 
La Migra or the immigration police is just not, are not our friends. <laughs> um, mm. And, and that like, and a desire for a world where not just for my, my family, my friends to live in freedom from that, but for all people to like not have to deal with over policing or policing in general. So what we call now the poli migra, so the police and the migra, those forces. So yeah, so I wanna say that part of it is like written in my story that this is something that we need to pay attention to. Um, a new world for me was actually moving here to North Carolina. So growing up in the Southwest part of this country, it was, it was not the, most of my interactions, my racialization was basically brown white because of the way, the place I grew up in, in LA, you know, like LA is segregated. And so it was, it was kind of like the Southern part of LA where there's mostly Latin American immigrants and Tucson same. And then moving out here to North Carolina, it became all of a sudden it was like, Oh, what, what does it mean to be Brown in a context where the primary racialization is uh, black, white, um, and kind of learning what it means to be in this place um, and to discover like the all the amazing interracial intersectional organizing justice work that this this community this community has. Um, so yeah, I would say maybe historically, like in my life growing up on the border, made me pay attention to the police, the polimigra. Um, over policing, people getting, you know, put in shackles and cages, all of that. And then now in this environment here in North Carolina, the sense where, you know, in order to set people free, to be free, we have to work across all of these racial lines. Um, no, no one is free until all of us are free. Yeah, and I mean, maybe like a big part of it is, is people showing up for one another. So it's just an amazing, scene to watch uh people showing up and wanting to be a part of that yeah yeah absolutely I, i've gotten to experience bits and pieces of that and it's always powerful when it happens so i, I believe i've shared most of my story with you before um, but you know i grew up in a context at least the first decade of my life that included pretty significant poverty and then i was middle class for most of the next decade um, and so my sophomore year of college, I went on a poverty simulation to Louisville, Kentucky with uh, this group of other, you know, young adults that were just, I guess, had nothing to better do on spring break. So we decided to be poor for a week. So we, we were there and we spent the week, you know, sleeping in a church basement, living in, you know, one of the rougher neighborhoods in Louisville. And we were divided into families and given a backstory. Um, and, and long story short, the week itself was very transformative and it, it gave me a, a taste of, of poverty different than I'd experienced it before. It's one thing to experience poverty as a kid when you can sort of comprehend what's going on, but you don't actually know any other lifestyle. And so as horrible as it is, it's also normal. It's another thing to come through that and then to experience it as a young adult, even just for a week and to kind of begin to understand the systemic scope of poverty and the oppressive downward force that poverty can exert on people and on families. And so that experience was a turning point for me. But within that experience, there's one moment that I was faced, really one moment that I was forced to come face to face with a really ugly and uncomfortable truth about myself. And it, it I don't want to say it haunts me, but it is definitely not one of my finer moments. So each family group 
got a voucher to go to the local food pantry and you got a small three by three box of food that was supposed to last for the entire week. And this Mm. had, you know, cans of corn, one jar of peanut butter, a couple apples, really basic stuff. We were told when we got there that we had to go to the food pantry between these specific hours. And if we didn't, we weren't going to get food. There were like six groups. Five of the groups understood that message and went. One group decided to go to their workplace first and they missed the food pantry hours. And so they got a box. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so they are talking to the other groups, talking to us, asking if we'll share their food. Now, mind you, my girlfriend, the woman who became my future wife, was in the group that did not get a box of food. Okay. And they come to us asking if we'll share. And my response was, no, you knew the rules. You should have gotten your box of food. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like an hour after I'd made that remark, it hit me that they were going to be hungry. Other people were sharing with them. How could I possibly be so selfish? and short-sighted that I wouldn't even share even the little I had for them, especially since my girlfriend was in the group. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, wow, wow, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and so, so it, it, it forced me to challenge kind of parts of my identity here. Yeah. I thought I was this great, this nice guy, this moral guy, and I had a really quick reality check. So I say all that to say, was there a time yeah. in your past where you faced a similar reality check where you had to come face to face with a part of yourself that maybe you either weren't aware of or just had successfully been ignoring until a specific moment forced it out into the open? Yeah, I mean, yeah, when I, yeah, that question, when I, when I read that question, the thing that came immediately to my mind was I grew up, uh, I mean, I was, I was like what it meant to be like who I was and think about the world, my faith. Um, uh, my, my family life, we, I mean, I was, I grew up anti-gay. I mean, I, part of how I understood the world. Um, I mean, I remember, um, in high school, uh, a couple friends who, um, I don't remember, I don't think they were out at the time, um, got a sense that they were gay and, and I, I mean, only recently within the past few years, I've tried to reach out to them and to be like, Hey, I remember, I think we were like pretty good friends, but did I say, did I, did I treat you inappropriately at all? Inappropriately at all? Did I say, you know, like, how was I in high school? I mean, that feels like a long time ago and I knew what was going on in my mind and I just hope it didn't become actions or words that I hurtful words, um, sexist words, homophobic words. Um, So I would say that that, when I think back in my life, just the, the, the embarrassment that that's how I thought about other people. Um, and it's been a long journey, uh, to be converted to, um, yeah, a way of honoring people, thinking about people, um, recognizing that, that they, that we are all gifts from God. Um, so yeah, I would say that that has been, that has been the, the thing for me. Yeah, that resonates deeply with me because I had a similar conversion. I'm curious to hear what it was for you that either began or kind of forced that conversion. But I spent time in college researching the theology, the arguments for and against. And while there are decent theological arguments that affirm the humanity of people that are uh, gay, queer, etc. 
it wasn't any of those that actually changed me permanently. It was an experience I had. I've always experienced God as love in my life. That's the primary way that, that spirit has interacted with me is the sense of deep love. And on campus one day at Manchester College, which is a small brethren school in Northeast Indiana, I saw our LGBTQ club and they were just demonstrating the most radical love I'd ever seen in my life. And it hit me that if I believe God is love and this group of people is demonstrating love in deeper ways than even I could, how can I deny that God is present with them? And so that's actually what changed me and made me do a hard pivot into a much more open and affirming uh, and inclusive stance. It, it wasn't the, the theology as nice as it can be sometimes that had very little to do with it. What were some of the things that forced your, your pivot? Yeah, I would say the two things that uh, came, come to my mind are one, when I was in college, um, there were some people who thought I was gay. And, you know, <laughs> so, and I, you know, it was one of those things where I was just like, this is a, it's interesting to be for my, whatever it is about my way of being in my body, uh, being in the world to be, um, called gay, queer, whatever, and then feeling all of a sudden what it's like to operate in the world um, with that identity, uh, you know, as, as, as that's how people understood, understood me to be. So that was like a, that was a, that was a moment for me just to kind of get a, just to feel like to, yeah, what, what is that like to operate in the world with, um, with people thinking that you're queer? Or at that point, the language was gay. And then um, in grad school and seminary, a good friend of mine, um, she was, uh, she was, is a lesbian, married to a woman. And they were very good friends. We would spend a lot of time together just watching them, watching her, especially because I was closer to one of the partners, the one who was in grad school with me, watching her faith grow and uh, just seeing like God's call on her life. And I, yeah, it was just really, really moving and, and profoundly, um, yeah, in a, in a very profound way, helped me understand how God works in this world. So I'd say those are probably the two, yeah, the two, the two things that helped with, but yeah, like you, I mean, I read all the passages, you know, like I, I did all the exegesis. I, um, I'd say probably the, it felt like my come to Jesus moment, like, you know, uh, you got to serve somebody as Bob Dylan says, uh, was, I don't know what, maybe five years ago now. I can't even, I'm so bad with time. But when someone in my congregation asked me to do their wedding, um, she, to have her, to perform the, on behalf of the congregation to bless her marriage to a woman. And, you know, that was a moment for me where I'm just like, all right, I've said I've I believe I've felt that I believe this. I've I've said it, and here's where like it matters. <laughs> um, and I would say at that point I kind of doubled down on my all my Bible study, all my historical church history, all just being like, all right, you know, this feels right to me, like just my sense and my spirit and and how I've come along, um, and I just want to make sure that that there are also like this biblical sense, theological sense that this is, this is what I should be doing. 
uh, as a minister of the gospel, you know, of the church. In a church at that point, well, I guess still now, says that pastors can't do same-sex weddings. I guess that was the, that was the new thing for me too, is the sense of like, if, if I am going to go against our church's teaching, our, I should say our denomination's teaching, not my congregation's teaching, um, I just have to have very good reason for it. Um, always give a reason for the faith, you know, inside you sort of thing, <laughs> that this is, that I can't just say that this is how God uh, has led me, but I need to also say, and in our common church, theological, biblical language, this is why it makes sense. That's, that's important. And something that I'm probably not that great at, not that I can't articulate those things, but once, once I get ahead of steam, I'm just like, Hey, I'm going to do this. And that is what it is. Uh, and so it's good that you have that, that foresight to kind of articulate reasoning behind it as well. I got to work on that. Uh, <laughs> so as you, well, actually the question that I'm holding most deeply now is, mm -hmm. as you think about the work, um, you know, I've known you have been involved in immigration work for a while. I just recently, actually, I think it was at convention last week where I pieced together that you felt pretty deeply about what's happening in our prisons as well and, and in deconstructing the criminal justice system. And so uh, as you think about either of those strains of work, they're intimately related. Mm -hmm. Is there a moment that comes to mind where your heart was broken and, mm. and what did that do for you? How did it change or affect your next steps? Yeah. Um, yeah. Where my heart was broken. I would say maybe, can I tell two stories? Is that right? oh, absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it's because it feels like two, it's a breaking in two different kinds of ways. One. So the first story when my heart was yeah, truly broken, um, was going into the maximum security prison down the road here in Raleigh um, to get a to get a tour of of the facility because I was going to start to teach these classes um, inside and walking up. I mean, it's just a crazy world to be in a maximum security prison because, like, I mean, you know, you go through all this. You get searched. You go through metal detectors and. And then you enter into, at least the one here in Raleigh, you have to enter into a elevator without any buttons, which you, know, you just get in there and then there's video camera and like you assume that the person's going to open the door at some point where you need to be going. And so it's like the sense of like not being in control of anything uh, at somebody else's mercy, completely submitted to a system. And you walk up and like these glass, plexiglass doors kind of open by some invisible hand and then close behind you. Going up and finding myself in this section that where all the doors were closed uh, and I had a guard with me and then this door opened to one side and this person was escorted out who, and it was a door, they were in um, the secure housing unit, also called the whole, um, for whatever reason, the prison officials, uh, they, their preferred language for it is uh, segregation, which sounds even worse to me, but Dang. yeah, they call it segregation. Um, so yeah, it's, it's 23 hour solitary confinement is what it is. Mm. And this man was brought in, he was in full restraints, which means his wrists were shackled together, his feet were shackled together. And then there was a chain connecting those two shackles to his waist. So he, you know, no movement at all. Um, two guards with him and uh, he was completely naked except for um, kind of like a 
a mini skirt made of a church or of a church <laughs> of a trash bag from like your kitchen. I mean, it just looks mm. so dehumanizing. And we caught eyes, like we glanced at one another, like our eyes met. And it was just this moment of utter despair that I saw, like an empty despair, like I've never seen before. Um, you know, I, I don't know how long he was in there. I don't know anything about his story. I don't know his name. I know nothing other than he was staring at, you know, cinder block concrete walls 23 hours a day. And, and that pounds meaningless into your flesh. You know, that just such dehumanization. Um, I learned later on that uh, the following month, this report came out on the prison that in solitary confinement in that, in that unit there at the maximum security prison, um, there was an in investigation because there's a number of complaints from uh, people incarcerated in that unit who said that guards were finding uh, blind spots in the unit. So like spots where video camera wouldn't see them and they were beating prisoners. Um, they were beating prisoners. And so just to imagine like that, also being part of that man's life. Um, so yeah, so that definitely broke me. Uh, that broke me um, that we live in a world that makes incarceration seem like a necessity. Mm -hmm. And um, my freedom is built upon that kind of dehumanizing oppression and for it to become so intimate to me as looking at somebody making eye contact and realizing that that person was suffering uh yeah in in a horrible horrible way that definitely you know all, all the ways you know reading michelle alexander and all those folks like you know i knew about it structurally like sure. how this a reading um, uh, George Jackson's memoirs about what it was like to be in San Quentin prison back in the day and all this stuff, you know, it's like, I knew it was dehumanizing, but just that visceral interpersonal encounter affected me on a very emotional level. Sure. And a spiritual level, it sounds like. Spiritual level. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Spiritual level. Definitely. Um, so yeah, so that moment. Um, and then I'll also say like the, in terms of, my uh, being broken open in a hopeful sense, Teresa of Avila, a Spanish mystic, mm -hmm. 16th century Spanish mystic, or 17th century, I think 16th century. Um, she talks about uh, the gift of tears as, you know, sometimes we cry because of devastation and sometimes we're given the gift of tears as like God's gift of joy. So it feels like, that's what I'm saying, like both feels feel like way of being broken open in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's just uh, the other experience I had was um, being part of the part of this group, Southerners on New Ground, which is a black, queer, um, feminist organization, women-led uh, organization that has been fighting against prisons like from day one. Mm -hmm. The organization, I don't know, 25 years ago it started. Um, being invited to their work of bailing out uh, black mothers and caregivers to be out for Mother's Day to be with their with their families, their their people. Um, there was this store this on our first bailout. So we raised money, raised a bunch of money, used that money 
to bail people out. We don't care what they're charged with. All that matters is if we can afford their bail. Mm-hmm. Bail's ranging from, I don't know, $500 to was one person who was like child support um, and then another uh, like trespassing charges, $1,500, whatever it might be. Anyhow, so um, we go, we have to get consent from people because one of the horrible things about our society is that uh, for some people, um, the threats upon their life on the outside are worse than what they have on the inside in, yeah. in the jail. So yeah. it's important to get consent to make sure that somebody wants to get um, set free. Um, so we wrote these letters uh, to folks being like, hey, you know, you, we've been identified through our, you're, you're a black woman. Um, we can afford your bail. Do you want us to bail you out? And we got this letter back uh, from somebody who was just like, you know, so grateful. It's like, yes, I want to be bailed out. Thank you so much. Oh, and we also asked like what kind of support needs they might have. Like, do you need housing? What, you know, what do you need? Um, and uh, in this letter, she responded, you know, thank you so much. Um, I, yes, I want to be bailed out. And then she says this line in the letter where she said, um, uh, from the moment I got your letter, I've put it under my pillow um, because it helps me get to sleep because your letter smells like freedom. Mm. Um, mm. And just this, just this sense of, of being like being part of it. So then I, I was also involved in like meeting, going up into jail and getting consent because I'm a pastor. So jails let, let me visit people um e- more easily than people who don't have a, a ministerial credential of some kind yeah um but being got sent up and meeting with women and being like hey you know what there's people downstairs been working really hard they raise a lot of money they want to bail you out what do you think and and just this profound sense of like somebody's i mean it's just sheer grace the only yeah. way to talk about it is grace i mean it's grace because I, a grace for me, because I had nothing to do with this um, other than being there, being invited into this. Uh, grace for the person, because, you know, this is, there's no connection here other than uh, there's people who want to bail you out. Um, and just watching how grace, what grace looks like when it happens in somebody's life mm-hmm. and to see them set free. So, uh, yeah, grateful to all the ways that they're being provided for. Um, yeah. So that was the other, that'd be another moment that has affected me in terms of prison work. Mm. Thank you for sharing both of those powerful, powerful narratives. Those of you listening, you obviously can't see Isaac's face, but your face literally lit up as you were mm-hmm. talking about grace and what that meant, especially for this woman. And so I'm wondering in that experience and as you were recalling it, what was happening within you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, so at, uh, song meetings, when I got, uh, invited to do this work with song folks, um, the, uh, the line that I've used for them is that they've, um, that they've baptized me into the work of abolitionism. <laughs> like mm. I've been baptized this, mm. this call that I got on the phone, being, Hey, can you visit these people in jail? And then that's led, you know, three years now, um, trying to figure out, and it is trying to figure out how to set people free from cages. And, it is the most, in this world where there's just so much that is daunting, that is devastating, the problems, the injustice feels so big. And to have these experiences with somebody that just like are the, 
incarnation of all that I believe about the gospel. You know, this Jesus who said, you know, I've come to set the captives free, to set the prisoners free. Um, and to just watch it happen makes, makes my faith tangible in ways that, that I don't have access to otherwise. Mm. Mm. That is a beautiful expression, a tangible faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are countless people that I imagine are searching for that very thing and aren't ever able to actually feel it or achieve it. And so uh, the fact that you've got an outlet and, a, and an avenue um, is powerful. And it almost sounds like um, it called to you, you know, yes. like it just, it, it reached yes. out and, and grabbed you and pulled you in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's exact. And that's why it feels like grace. Like I didn't, there's nothing that I did to, you know, deserve like to make this happen. It was just a phone call from a friend being like, Hey, I think you'll be down with this. What do you think? I'm like, yeah, I'm down. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what it like. Yeah. I, I w- it's just been this profound blessing privilege in my life to be a part of, of this work grabbed mm. from, yeah. Been caught up in something. Yeah. Yeah. So as you think about your journey, mm-hmm. who are the people in your life that you most closely walk with mm. and how do they act as mirrors for you? How do they reflect yourself back to you in ways that maybe you aren't able to otherwise do? Yeah. The best mirror that I have is probably my congregation. Mm. Um, and, you know, I know this is not the case for every pastor out there, but um, I was a member of this church before I became a pastor. And I think because I developed those very uh, vulnerable relationships with people at church that I have no, like, I cannot be, if I were to be dishonest, untrue to myself, people would call me out because <laughs> yeah. they, they knew me before I was pastor and they'd be like, you know, you're putting on airs or mm. um, there's a, you know, what's with this posturing that you got going on. Or, yeah. It seemed like you're telling the truth. And so the, the discipline of having to get up in front of people and say words about God, about this world, about our community. And to know that if I'm not truthful, people will call me out on it has been, it's been a gift in my, in me being a whole person. Yeah. Um, that I can be wholly who I am and in ways that, that it feels like in this life where we're always tempted to be untrue that, that like there's a community that's supportive of who I am um, and doesn't need to be anything different uh, than who I am. Right. Mm. That's a wonderful gift to have. Yeah. And extraordinarily rare, I imagine, especially for those in, in leadership of any kind, let alone pastoral leadership. Do you have a sense of the spirit's vision for what, your future might hold as, as you continue to grow and evolve and are expanded by God. Do you have a sense of other ways in which you might manifest your gifts and your calling in the world? Yeah, no, that's a question that comes up a lot for me. Um, not necessarily that I feel in my spirit, but that, that always, that, that comes to me by people I trust. Mm. Um, because I've been a, the pastor of my church now for 13 years. Okay. Um, and you know like how do you know when a season is done you know like what does it mean um i mean i still get a lot of life out of my 
pastoral ministry, and it seems like people continue to affirm me in that role. Um, so it feels good for now, but I always, you know, I, every once in a while someone asks me, be like, you know, is, is this, are you going to do this forever? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I have always, this is, this has always been a problem for me and I don't know what it means. I'm sure perhaps some spiritual direction would be helpful. Um, but I've never been somebody, I don't, I don't have visions for my life. Like mm. I, I don't really have a sense of this is what I want, where I want to be in five years or 10 years. It's so hard for me to think that way. Um, the best sense that I've been able to make of like that, that block in my mind is I grew up being convinced that I was going to be a, uh, a professional soccer player. Like that was my okay. dream. That's what I gave my life to. I, you know, like, I was on the club teams, the traveling teams. It's part of the Olympic development program growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that. Uh, I was playing college ball. And then I had uh, tore my ACL like twice in the same uh, one, like subsequent years. And I want to say that maybe that, like this way of my whole life being built in one direction. And then just the way that comes crashing down through no fault of my own. Yeah, and has has made me perhaps act as a defense mechanism, as a psychological defense mechanism, has prevented me from from like dreaming about my life. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, all right, I'm gonna offer. Um, I don't know what this is. It's not quite advice. It's something. I'll take advice. Take <laughs> I don't think it qualifies as advice. That's why I can't say it. Uh, but I I've come to understand, at least for myself, there. are kind of three, at least three different knowing centers within me, right? There's my mind, there's my emotional or, or, or heart center, and then there's my gut level intuition. Um, and so I, I wonder what it would be like for you to ask that question of what your vision is from each center um, rather than just trying to imagine Ooh, yeah. from the mind. Um, right. So yeah, just something to, to hold as you continue to move forward. Wait, so, so the, the heart center and gut center, can you tell me the distinction between those two? Yes. Are you familiar with chakras at all? Yeah. Okay. Right. So yeah. I love chakras. Okay. Um, and so the, the heart center, I'm envisioning the, literally the heart chakra and mm-hmm. the gut center is like the solar plexus chakra, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, the, the heart center is where my most intense and manifested emotions reside. It's where I feel emotion most significantly in my body. Um, and it's where I experience um, love or fear or even compassion, kind of those reactive, inherently relational emotions. My gut center is where I get my intuitive hits. The things that I know, but I can't explain how I know. The things that I feel, but I can't actually tell you what I'm feeling, right? It's just kind of that vague sixth sense um, that that you experience on on people in situations. Um, And so as I have delved into a more mystic, experience in my own spirituality, I'm slowly beginning to differentiate which of those centers I'm operating from and which is being being triggered. Um, so I know that wasn't very specific, but that's as best as I can articulate how I understand the difference between those two. Oh, no, no, no that makes sense. Yeah. The, yeah. I get those. I feel those. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Those feel different. Um, yeah. Thank, thanks for that. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. So final question. It is both the easiest and I believe the hardest question. <laughs> I like it so much. 
Isaac Viegas, who are you? Ooh. Yeah, I am the child of Latin American immigrants. I'm a beloved child of God who is committed to the work of liberation for all people. And I find incredible meaning and joy in life whenever I get to be, a, whenever I'm brought into, get to be a part of any of that work of liberation. Because God is about setting people free. Amen. Amen. And I imagine you feel you have been set free as well. And I've been set free. Yeah. Mm. Still working. I mean, still working on it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Still, yeah. still willing to receive any kind of freedom that might come. Thank you um, for sharing and for listening. Um, I do want to take a, a few moments, though, to help share with people what any work that you're involved in now that they can partner um, alongside you with, or if you know of organizations that might be national that they might want to look into either regarding prison reform, immigration, or, you know, even spirituality, if they want to tap into anything that MCUSA is doing, anything that comes to mind that you feel worth sharing, I give you the space to do so. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's most pressing in my, on my mind and my heart right now is just the, just the devastation at the border like what, what is being caused by um, this administration's policies, by the increasing militarization of the border that's happened for decades now, um, people dying, kids being taken to these detention centers, concentration camps, um, people not being able to find asylum here, fleeing from dangerous situations in their, in their lives, being held. Uh, the border so I, yeah so that's the most pressing thing that i can think of to connect people beyond my my own like uh current locality and i i want the organization that seems to be doing such powerful work uh, in responsible ways is al otro lado um so they're a group in uh, tijuana and san diego that is providing um, legal support. Yeah, everything, legal support, housing. I mean, every, every, like whatever mm -hmm. might be going on. Um, so yeah, Al Otro Lado is the, is the name of the organization that I would say people should, should look into, give money if they can, offer prayers, whatever it might be. Thank you again for joining me uh, in this. And um, I'm excited about all that we shared. It was a blessing to get to, to hear more of your story. And I know that, uh, this is going to resonate with others that are listening as well. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time too and reaching out. Yeah. Thank you for these questions too. These are not ones that I think too much about. So I, I'm grateful for at least the growth in my life by you opening me up in these ways. Amen. If, man, if you ever need hard questions, just hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode eight of the Invisible Truths podcast. I hope you appreciated my interview with Isaac Viegas of Chapel Hill Mennonite Fellowship. If you're interested in supporting Al Otro Lado, I've included a link to their website in the episode description, so please click that link and support them in any way you feel led to. And as you continue to think about and reflect on the stories that Isaac told today, I want to invite you to be mindful of times that you have felt brokenhearted. What did that experience of being brokenhearted do to you? 
Did it challenge you? Did it harden you? Did it break you open and fill you with hope? Or break you open and fill you with despair? Or did it transform you and motivate you towards positive change in your life or the lives of others? How has your unique experience of heartbreak impacted your life, vocation, and sense of purpose or calling in this world? Again, thank you for listening to Episode 8 of the Invisible Truths Podcast. I'm Ben Tapper.